Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Lori Metcalf is a veteran actor. In the late 70s, when she was in college, she and a few of her classmates started putting on plays at a Unitarian church in Deerfield, Illinois. Those classmates included people like Gary Sinise, John Malkovich, and Tracy Letts. The theater, called Steppenwolf, became one of the most acclaimed theater companies in the United States. Maybe you were lucky enough to see Lori in the off-Broadway rendition of Balm and Gilead back in the 80s. She won a bunch of awards for her part in it. And you almost definitely saw her on TV's Roseanne. For nine years, she played Jackie, Roseanne's sister, on the show. She's now starring in The Connors, the ABC-produced spinoff of Roseanne. These days, Laurie's been working a lot on Broadway. She's been nominated for a bunch of Tonys and won 2017's Best Actress Award for her role in A Doll's House Part Two. In a profile earlier this month, the New York Times called her the first lady of American theater. Also in 2017, she starred alongside Saoirse Ronan in the critically acclaimed Lady Bird, the fascinating, beautiful coming-of-age film directed by Greta Gerwig. When she and I talked last year, she was up for an Academy Award for her role in it. The movie centers around the title character, Lady Bird McPherson, a high school senior living in Sacramento, California. She's played by Ronan. Lady Bird dreams of leaving Sacramento, moving to the East Coast, and going, as she says, wherever writers live. Lori plays Marion, Lady Bird's mom, and the relationship between the two of them is easily one of the most compelling pieces of the movie. It's complicated and messy, they fight a lot, they push each other's buttons, but the love they share is palpable. Let's take a listen to a little bit from Lady Bird, a little background first. This is toward the beginning of the movie. Lady Bird just made plans to spend Thanksgiving with her new boyfriend, and in this scene, Marion has taken her to the local thrift store to pick out a new dress. Did Danny say whether his grandmother has a formal Thanksgiving? I don't know. There are a lot of kids, but she lives in the Fab 40s. Oh, well, your dad and I went to a dinner party once in that neighborhood. The CEO of ISC. That was pretty formal. You're not going to a funeral. Well, I don't know. What says rich people Thanksgiving? I just think it's such a shame that you're spending your last Thanksgiving with a family you've never met instead of us. But I don't know. I guess you want it that way. Are you tired? No. Hey, Marion. Hey, Joyce. Hey, how's the baby? No, I want to see a picture at checkout. Okay. okay. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay. I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's um, perfect. I love it. <laughs> oh man uh laurie metcalf welcome to bullseye it's great to have you on the show thank you jesse i have to say that when i watched lady bird and i, and I watched it really knowing nothing about it i watched it mm-hmm. before it came out because we were going to have greta gerwig on the show mm-hmm. and i had more like intense, upsetting uh, high school flashbacks of the relationship between my wife and her mom, which was a wonderful relationship and is a wonderful relationship, and my mother-in-law is the best. But it's those weird emotional dynamics are so tense and so continuous. 
Yes. They're, they're the, the, the mother-daughter – well, it's a beautiful and so complex mother-daughter relationship that Greta captured um, on the page, you know, as the writer, the screenwriter, and then and, – and also in the direction that she so brilliantly did. And, and it's, it's how um, those – the intensity can just spin out on a dime. And then everything falls away and is forgotten because you're on to the next uh, lovely moment between the mom and the daughter. Um, she just really did that well. Did living with the script change the way that you thought about your relationship with your own kids or your relationship you with know, your mom? It really did. I was looking at it from the mother's point of view, obviously. And and um, when I first read the screenplay, I, I I knew instantly, you know, how the headbutting scenes would go because I was I was actually living that at the time with a teenager in the house, and so those were really easy to connect to. But I was also really um, thankful that Greta peppered in the, the the moments of heart between the the mom and daughter, and where they are on the same page, they're comforting each other, or they're um, reminiscing about, or they're having a a, a very nice shared experience together because this is a we're just seeing them during this dysfunctional moment in their lives it's never always been this way and it won't stay this way but what i was um really shocked when i sat in an audience for the first time and listened to it watched it um hearing uh some of the language come out of my character's mouth because in playing it, I knew where that character was coming from, and, and it was from a, a, a place of heart, actually, of wanting to help, of wanting to, you know, kick this kid's ass and get her into gear and, and, and make her, you know, just sit up and start to appreciate things and, you know, everything that the mother wants for her daughter. But to hear it come out in such an aggressive way when I watched it, was really startling to me and really did make me think of how I have phrased things to my own kids. Was there anything that Greta Gerwig told you uh, about what she wanted the character to be and what she wanted the film to be beyond what was on the page? No, I think it was all on the page. It really, she had worked so carefully on the script, so meticulously, that by the time we got to the set... Um, there was never that weird scramble that you can have sometimes where everybody looks at each other and says, well, this isn't working. Now what do we do? Because we have to get this shot in, you know, the next three hours. We were all on the same page. We had a couple of days of rehearsal, not days, a, a few meetings where Greta would spend with either um, as many of us together as, as, as could in, in whatever city that we were in or... Sersha and I got to spend a couple of days with her in, in her apartment or at her office in L.A. right before we were about to shoot, just to make sure we were on the same page, just to make sure that if uh, we were going to have another um, antagonistic scene together, that we didn't want to make it the same as the one before it, because there's a lot of that throughout the, the film with the mother and the daughter. And so we wanted to parse out, you know, who was actually triggering it this time around, who was being passive-aggressive, who was who was interpreting whatever was something benignly said, you know, in an antagonistic way, uh, you know, mix it up like that so all of the, the battles weren't the same. There is kind of a, an amazing blend of textures in 
those relationships as I see them. I mean, it's something that I have with my mom, but it, it don't feel like it's the same, which is there's a lot of just kind of like, there's a lot of kind of poking and falling back. <laughs> and it, I don't think it was a relationship that I had seen before in mm-hmm. a film that kind of, there's a lot of bruise pressing, but not a mm-hmm. lot of dressing down, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm getting <laughs> chills just thinking about it. Chilling, yes. <laughs> because it's so real. It's, you know, she just, maybe we haven't seen it, but it certainly exists in probably every family that I know, and she's really captured it. Let's hear another scene from Lady Bird. And my guest is Laurie Metcalf. Um, so in this scene, uh, the whole family, including uh, the brother and his girlfriend, are all sitting down at breakfast. And Marion, uh, which is uh, Laurie's character, and Lady Bird are, are arguing over who should make the eggs. And then the vegan girlfriend, who is maybe like 19 or 20, she's kind mm-hmm. of saying that uh, eggs are bad for the environment and the dad is there and he's reading the newspaper and not really paying attention and they're all sitting together and they're talking to each other, but no one is actually breaking through to anyone else. Why can't I just make the eggs? Because you take too long, you make a big mess, and I have to clean the whole thing up. Eggs aren't good for the environment anyways. What? You heard her. Eat quickly, please. Look at all these pictures. Every newspaper looks like USA Today. Shelly and I are trying to be vegan. That's the soy milk. You wear leather jackets. But they're vintage, so they don't support the industry. They aren't done. There's white stuff. You know how much you have brambles? Pigs are smarter than him, even. I never thought brambles was a genius, okay? Mom, the eggs are not done. Fine, make your own I wanted to. You won't let me. Sister doesn't like me. I'm hungry. She does. There's a chance. Go to bed. <laughs> I, I I have a buddy who has actually uh, guest hosted this show before, a comedian named, named Guy Branham. And he is a huge gay genius from outside of Sacramento. <laughs> and he's he's from an he's from what you might call rural Sacramento. Um, mm. You know, it doesn't you don't have to go that far outside of Sacramento before you're in America's breadbasket. Right. And. I think Guy connected more deeply to the Sacramento-ness of this film than mm-hmm. anyone else on this planet. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading about your early life, I wondered if, as a person from Southern Illinois, whether you related to that Sacramento-ness, that feeling of living in almost an, like an outpost. Yeah, I did. I think Greta described Sacramento as the Midwest of California. Mm-hmm. So I felt perfectly at home, whether we were, you know, shooting scenes within the house, which was actually set in L.A., or and during the last two weeks when we got to go up. And it was my first time seeing Sacramento, and things just sort of clicked. I mean, it it, it seemed like a, a small town. And you couldn't I, – I saw the beauty in it, but I could see how easily it would be passed over by um, – especially by a teenager having gro- grown up there. Um, and the architecture even made sense to me. I don't know. It, it It's a love letter from Greta to Sacramento. And um, I, 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 it, it made me really, really appreciate the place. If you were telling someone what was special about where you grew up in the way that she did with Sacramento, what do you mm. think 
What do you think someone wouldn't understand about what it's like to be from Southern Illinois? Um, I like the flatness of it. <laughs> and I lo- of course, it was, you know, very long time ago. So there was a, I, there was a naivety that I liked growing up where I did. Um, small town, again, um, I think at that point it was, the town was only, was under 10,000 maybe. I, I just, it was very clear to me. Southern Illinois just has a very, has a clearness, I guess. I just understand, you know, the people are very um, practical and upfront about things. There's uh, there's not a lot of uh, role playing going on or anything. You just you understand somebody pretty quickly. They just are what you see them as. You know, it really is something. The extent to which the kind of cultural experience of growing up in a particular place mm-hmm. doesn't translate perfectly when you are somewhere else. And you have to really like not just learn how to understand how people from other places are in the world, but also just understand that other people from other places in the world are different. Like it's a sort mm-hmm. of a two-step thing. Yeah, yeah. Did you have that? Did you have that experience? Like when? Well, you... my first experience w- was when I when I did go to college, and I didn't go as far as Lady Bird. I didn't go across country. I, I stayed within um, Illinois, so I went about um, I don't I don't a few hundred miles away to Central Illinois, from Southern to Central, which was a huge move for me, and um, I started hearing um, a, a very very particular but. To me, foreign accent, really, really strange. Had no idea what it was, and it finally dawned on me that these were kids coming down from Chicago. <laughs> it was like a different land. <laughs> and it took me a long time to piece it together to figure it out. <laughs> you could eventually you figure you learned that they were the ones holding a jar of sport peppers. <laughs> Signature Chicago condiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and little did I know that I, that I would move there, and 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 form a theater company and spend the next twenty years. You know, I feel like you. I get the impression that when you were a teenager, and even when you were in college, you did not have a plan. To, no, to... no plan. No, I. I mean, I. I worked up the nerve to audition for a play while I was in high school, and that's as far as it went. You know, I I had I, I was not trying to kid myself that I would ever be able to make a living at being an actor because nobody did. Nobody that I knew. Nobody within you know thousands of miles of me. When you were in college, and you were majoring in, I believe initially German, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is <laughs> pointless. Is that a romance language? It's definitely a very romantic oh, college major. I don't, you know, I had taken it in in high school, and I I really loved the language, but what I thought that I was going to do with it, I mean, I hear this is a typical seventeen year olds thinking, you know, like there's no way I'm going to be an actor, so I won't pursue that, but I will pursue the study of German. Thinking what? Oh, I'll be a translator somewhere. You know where? I there there was no connecting of the dots anywhere. So, but I did know that I I did know that I liked the language and 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 in hindsight I I think I just like language and I like writing. I like and I like to be a literal interpreter. 
So I, I was going after being an interpreter in the wrong way. So acting kind of solved that for me. I, I'm able to be an interpreter, um, not only of language, but of body language. And uh, that to me is, is really fascinating. We'll finish up with Lori Metcalf after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's been two years since Kathy Griffin took a photo with a bloody Donald Trump mask. She is still feeling the aftermath. I have never seen anything like this, where if you make a joke about the president of the United States, you may die. Kathy Griffin on the next It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Greatest Generation is a Star Trek podcast that destigmatizes the very idea of having a Star Trek podcast. <laughs> We're Ben and Adam, the hosts of The Greatest Generation, and the technology we've developed is that nobody knows what you're playing in your earbuds. You know, with legalization, it's easier than ever to find out what's in your buds. <laughs> but we suggest that you legally find The Greatest Generation wherever you download your podcasts. We'll send it to you in a discreet, unmarked package, <laughs> and nobody has to know but us. That's The Greatest Generation, the Star Trek podcast that you didn't know you needed, yet makes you feel like you belong. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the award-winning actress Lori Metcalf. You've seen her on Roseanne and its spin-off show, The Connors, in films like Toy Story and elsewhere. When we talked last year, she was nominated for an Academy Award for her role in 2017's Lady Bird. Among the folks who ended up being founding members of the Steppenwolf Theater, who were your friends in college, mm-hmm. who, who do you remember glomming onto first? Or glomming onto you? I don't mean to be presumptuous. Well, it was, we glommed on all together at, as some icky group. Uh, frankly, I mean, it was very incestuous. <laughs> so we, you know, we switched partners all the time. We were very uh, secluded and insular. We, we, we knew nobody else, especially when we formed our little tight weirdo company. But I, I, we were all taken with each other. We, we just had a shared sense of humor and we had a shared passion for theater um, and we, what we all wanted to do more than anything was either make each other laugh in a role or make each other cry in a, in a part, you know. So we challenged each other in, in, in that sense. And we were very lucky that we had a lot of talented people. It was just a fluke. And we also had a lot of talented directors that came out of it because none of, we were all just actors. Nobody wanted to direct. That was like the – that was the dud job if you had to direct – a play because that meant that you know you you didn't get to be on stage with the rest of the gang. What did John Malkovich wear when he was twenty? <laughs> uh, I well, um, I don't know how to describe it. Um, <laughs> he would wear he would wear a suit that's for sure, which was unheard of. A suit and a tie and maybe even a vest. I mean, this is like 1974 or 5 yeah, or something, yeah, right? Yes. Ridiculous. And then paired with giant, giant platform shoes. Or for a while, I think he went through one of those phases where he wore those little Chinese slippers. They're just black and they have a little strap that goes across. 
Like a Bruce Lee, Mary Jane situation? Yes, yes. He was the most fashion forward of all of us. I mean, the rest of us, and I still do, are in jeans and a flannel shirt every day. That's what I'm wearing right now, you know. Was it as intense as the reputation suggests it was? And not just intense, like intense almost to the point of like to the whatever is just short of violence, I think is yeah. pretty much what the reputation of uh, yeah. that yeah. theater it was. Yes, it was. Um, yes, it was. Yeah, yes, we would do things on stage. That, I mean, if we were supposed to beat each other up on stage, then we beat each other up. You know, there was we we didn't see any other way except to, to to do it that way. And it was intense in the in the in the fact that in the sense that we were twenty years old and everything is intense. You know, and so you can have a company meeting and somebody's going to start screaming and run out into the street, you know, and want to be begged to come back. Come back, please, please, we didn't mean it. You know, everything was heightened. Um, and and again, we had you know people were having relationships within there, and that all that comes with its own baggage. You know, like maybe one couple is just broken up, and they're not speaking or not on good terms, and everybody's tiptoeing around them. You know, it it was uh, it was a melting pot of of adolescent angst and 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 and, and excitement and. Uh, I don't know that I would want to visit revisit that again, <laughs> but in the moment, it was it was always exciting. I was shocked to read that literally, <laughs> that literally, when you were picking what play to do, you just <laughs> you'd go to the library, yeah, <laughs> to the play section. Yeah. So what year that would have been like seventy eight or nine or something like that. So we would go to the library and check out best plays of nineteen seventy seven, <laughs> and and just try and find something that at least had a role for a couple of us, and then the others could fill in. Lori, I don't know if it was a good plan. It's a better plan than checking out worst plays of nineteen seventy seven. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> But we we had no resources, you know, and nobody could write. So we we knew we were chomping at the bit to get great parts and wanted to act, and we we needed that vehicle, you know. So we would just any play was good enough, you know. We would just go at it one hundred and fifty percent. You had a part uh, that transformed your acting career in a play called Balm and Gilead. Mm-hmm. Um, which by the time you were doing it in Steppenwolf was already a revival. And then you, as a group, brought it to Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, Off-Broadway. Off-Broadway. And this is in the early 1980s, I guess. Yeah. And I I read Frank Rich's review from the New York Times of that show. I, I don't, I mean, I, I have hardly ever read a more effusive review about an acting performance than the paragraph that he dedicated to you. I think he said that it it will surely be uh, one of the uh, highlights of the year in theater or something like that. Well, it it was um, a really special play and it was a really special time to be in New York. It's the first time I'd ever gone to New York, went there as a group. We knew the play worked because we had done it in Chicago and it was working really well. 
And um, it was a very theatrical play, which was different for the time. And, and John Malkovich directed it. And he threw in music by Tom Waits and Bruce Springsteen and Ricky Lee Jones. And it, it, really, it took off. And, and those three people came to see the play in a little 125-seat house. It was really a heady time to be doing theater. But it came with this terrific... Um, part that I got to play, which had a long monologue in the middle of it, which was so beautifully written that it, it, it was just a, a, a real surprise to the audience. And to this day, about every two or three months, somebody stops me somewhere and says that they saw that play and and that it has stayed with them. They can quote lines from it. They remember it vividly because I think it was so theatrical. It had, it had um, 30 people in the cast, and sometimes people would freeze and a big spotlight would come down on one person and the music would swell. It was very, very different. And, and um, people remember the pictures that it, that it formed, and they remember that monologue too. That monologue, when you say it was a big monologue, that was like a 10 or 20 minute monologue, like almost a one act play in and of itself. I I don't have any recordings from 1984, um, but I do have a recording from a a few years ago at Lanford Wilson's uh, memorial service where you performed just a little bit of one of the monologues and, and talked about uh, what the work and what he meant to you. Your character, Darlene, is a somewhat naive prostitute, and you're in this diner that you described that's full of various types of people who are on the outs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. runaways and, and junkies and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And this character is very, um, has an odd sort of optimism. Yeah. Um, in her foolishness. So I want to take a listen to just just a little bit of my guest, Lori Metcalf, uh, performing Darlene uh, from Lanford Wilson's play, uh, Balm and Gilead. This guy I used to go with when I first got a room of my own up on Armitage Street. Do you know that part of Chicago? Most of the streets either run east-west <laughs> or... Up and down. <laughs> one or the other. But some of them kind of cut across all the rest of them, like Amity Street does, and a lot of the nicer ones do. Fullerton does. And they're wider with big trees and all, and there are all of these lovely old apartment buildings, very well taken care of, with the little lawns out front, little flower boxes in the windows, and all, you know. I mean, and the rents, compared to what they charge you with here, the rents are practically nothing even in this neighborhood. So my apartment was two flights up right in the front. It was so cute, you would have loved it. They had it all done over when I first moved in. They had three rooms. And just this lovely big living room looked right out onto Armitage Street and a cute little kitchen. And the bedroom looked out onto a garden. And across from the garden, there was a, a, park, a park, ramp park. Or some park, I never Everything she's saying is wrong. <laughs> she's getting all all the names of things wrong. And it, this was so um, wonderfully uh, written 
that it was a, a character that, you, you know, I think somebody said you, you, you would kill yourself if you were caught on a long bus ride with this person. <laughs> um, and so it and it's just she's just um, beyond stupid. And it goes from being a character that you would totally write off to someone who is very, very deeply moving at the end. And uh, that 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 was the brilliance of the writing, and that that's why I think that people, the monologue stood stood out so so well because it was just something that you hadn't seen or you didn't expect it. You thought, okay, I know this person right off the bat, and then by and then fifteen minutes later, you're you're sobbing because of what she's saying. You were not an accomplished screen actor when you were cast on Roseanne. No, I'd never done anything. No, uh, no, I take that back. I had done one movie. Yeah, you were in Desperately Seeking Susan. Mm-hmm. Did you, like, move to Los Angeles and start auditioning for sitcoms? Or, <laughs> Well, I went to, I was in Chicago doing plays back to back to back. And then I had, and then, you know, went to New York to do Balm and Gilead. And off of that, I got cast in Desperately Seeking Susan. And I thought, okay, well, that was a, you know, just a one-time only film shot or whatever. Then I went back to Chicago, more plays, more plays. And then I thought, you know what, maybe I'll... Uh, Gary Sinise had moved out to L.A. and he was having some good luck uh, getting some TV work, I think. And I thought, maybe I'll go out to L.A. I'll give it two weeks. I'll um, stay on somebody's couch and see if I can get a movie. And then it just so happened that um, the same casting directors who cast Desperately Seeking Susan were casting Roseanne, and they were in L.A., and I happened to be there. I mean, literally in the right place at the right time. And I went in and read for them. They didn't even have the sides written for the sister. So I read Roseanne's sides, and I got the part. And then I thought, oh, I don't know, though, a TV Role. What if I end up getting typecast? And they're like, you, you know what? You'd be an idiot to pass on this. So I, I took it, and luckily it was um, just one of the best written sitcoms ever. I mean, one of the best sitcoms ever. I know that you can't yeah. compliment the acting because you were one of the actors, but uh, all around, <laughs> one of the greatest television shows ever made. Um. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, how about this? Let's hear a scene from Roseanne. <laughs> and my my guest is Laurie Metcalf. And if you don't remember well Roseanne, well, great news. You get to watch Roseanne for the first time. But um, uh, Laurie played Jackie, who was Roseanne's sister. Um, uh, Roseanne was the lead in the show alongside John Goodman. And so in this clip from the show, Jackie and Roseanne are finding out that their dad passed away. And Roseanne is sitting at, I think it's a kitchen table. And Jackie is talking on one of those phones that hangs on the wall. And Roseanne has made her call a relative to to uh, break the news that, that their dad has died. Annie Barbara, it's Jackie. Jackie. I'm fine. Fine. I'm fine. I have some bad news. Dad is not with us anymore. I said, Dad has passed away. He's passed away. Dad is gone. 
again. You can't make this. <laughs> I feel you like... know who wrote that? Who's that? Uh, Norm Ma- Norm Macdonald. Oh, well, there he wrote you go. That, that little bit. Yeah, he's got a wicked sense of humor. You know, he was one of the writers on this R- Roseanne reboot. He came in to write. Yeah, he was sitting there in a uh, he was sitting there in a in a room with my buddy Morgan Murphy, who's a brilliant yeah, TV writer. Morgan. But I was like, she's sitting in there with Norm Macdonald in a windowless writer's office. <laughs> Laurie Metcalf, uh, you're the greatest. Thank you very much for coming on Bullseye and talking to me. What an honor to get to have you on the show. I was so Thanks, happy Jesse. To, to get to meet you. Thank you. Lori Metcalf. This interview didn't drive it home already. She is absolutely brilliant in Lady Bird. You should see Lady Bird if you haven't already. What's she up to these days? She is set to star in a new production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf next year on Broadway. She'll be performing alongside Eddie Izzard. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. It's spring out there, folks, and the geese and ducks are very excitable, somewhat territorial. We want you to be careful if you're walking in the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. He's on the boards right now. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a best-of compilation of music from Bullseye that Dan made. You can find it on Bandcamp. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And before you go, uh, there are... Nearly 20 years of history of this program since I was literally 19 years old. So you can find hundreds and hundreds of interviews on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can hear them all there. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.